Well, we're told that Switzerland is neutral when it comes to wars between other nations, even their neighboring nations. Switzerland's policy is always neutrality. In our country today, some people adopt a similar position when it comes to religion. Oh, sure, some are religious zealots. Some are impassioned atheists. But I've met plenty of people who would prefer to play it cool when it comes to God or Jesus or the Bible. But is that possible? Will that work? It seems to have sort of worked for the Swiss. They got through World War II with that position of neutrality. But it doesn't work with God, according to the Bible. It doesn't work with Jesus. And it's not just unwise or unfortunate or lazy to not make up your mind about Jesus. It's impossible. Well, that's where we're headed today in this sermon. That's where we'll land at the very end. Most of our time, however, we'll backtrack more than a thousand years before Jesus to the time of David. We're in 1 Samuel 18 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn there. 1 Samuel 18. Eventually, we'll see how David points us to Jesus. We'll see how 1 Samuel 18 is merely a foreshadow of what happens much later in the Bible with Jesus. We've seen that sort of thing again and again and again in our study of 1 Samuel. We'll see it again today. But let's first give 1 Samuel 18 its due attention as we continue to work our way through this, this book of 1 Samuel Last week we saw the story of David and Goliath in chapter 17. And David not only defeated the giant, but he also paved the way for the Israelite army to then go and, and ransack the rest of the Philistine army. It was a great defeat. David caught the attention of King Saul, as we saw at the end of chapter 17, with Goliath's giant head in his little arm, Saul inquired, whose boy is this? Who is his father? We find out now in chapter 18 why Saul asked that. Let's read the whole chapter together. It's about 30 verses. No, it is 30 verses. And it will take us about five minutes to read it, but it'll be worth our time. Verse 1 says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments." And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry 
The saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Moholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Well, you might notice in the back of your, uh, your bulletin, the sermon notes page there, we've got three sections to what we're looking at today. We'll see three reactions to David's successes in verses 1 through 9. 
Then we'll see five wicked plots for David's demise. That'll wrap us up in the chapter. And then I have two observations for how this chapter applies for us today. More sermon notes than usual, but I think it'll keep us moving along and uh, keep things sensible for us. First three reactions to David's success. The first of those is Jonathan, who loves David. Jonathan loves David. It says in verse 1, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That may sound unusually affectionate to you, but it's not hinting at any kind of funny business. Some propose that, sadly. It's just describing godly friendship. Proverbs says that a friend that sticks better, sticks closer than a, than a brother is, is a real blessing. Jesus told us to love our neighbor as we love our own selves. And here, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Indeed, he loves David more than just the average friend or acquaintance. There's just something special here, of course, but it's godly friendship. Well, actually, there is maybe something more here than just godly friendship in Jonathan's love of David. That word love, that can mean brotherly affection. It can also mean romantic love, like we read in verse 20, that Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. But it can also be a political word, loved, like commitment to, loyalty with, alliance with, allegiance to. It can mean something like a political covenant. It's not just emotional, heart, affection. It can also mean political covenant. And that's a word that's in verse 3, covenant. Jonathan made a covenant with David. We're not told exactly what this covenant is, but again, it's likely political. It, it has to do with allegiance. And the significance of Jonathan's love for David and his covenant with David is made more clear in verse 4 when it says, Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and he gave it to David with his armor, even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. This is so symbolic and so important. And yet it's easily missed by us 21st century Americans because we don't understand what's happening in their culture. Jonathan is handing over the things that mark him as the crown prince. He's handing over his right to the throne. He's abdicating his succession to the throne of Saul. He's deferring to David. He's submitting to him. Now back up and play this whole scene over again, imagining yourself in, in Jonathan's shoes. Remember, you're the royal prince. You're next in line to the throne. You're a leader of the army, if not the leader of the army under your dad, Saul. And you've had your own successes in the land. You're well-known, well-acclaimed, well-liked. And in the last chapter, this youth, this shepherd, stepped out and went and fought the giant Goliath, and he won with a slingshot. He chopped off the giant's head. 
And he took the, the giant's armor as his own, like a victory token. If you or I were Jonathan, we would view David as a threat. We would see him as a threat. In those days, when one would be next in line to the throne, anyone who would threaten it would be just taken out. Just remove him from the picture altogether, remove the threat. The only explanation for Jonathan's remarkable, unthinkable reaction to David here at the beginning of chapter 18 is that he must have known what we read about earlier, about Samuel's prophecy of what's coming to the line of Saul and to Saul himself. Remember, Samuel said in chapter 13, The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and commanded him to be prince over his people. We don't know if Jonathan was there. We don't know if he heard those exact words. Maybe he was there in chapter 15 when the prophet Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, Saul, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We've been seeing it all along. We we know David's the anointed. But somehow in humility and, and faith, Jonathan must know about what's already been Promised the end of Saul's line, and and he must know and see that this little giant killer is God's anointed. So what else can he do but bow? What else is he supposed to do but give up whatever rights he had? To oppose David would be to resist God. He understands that. A second re- reaction that's not, not quite as, uh, well, as faith-filled, but still very, very positive, it's all Israel celebrating David. All Israel celebrates David. David's not only defeated Goliath, but then his defeat of Goliath empowered the Israelite army to go and charge the Philistines. We saw that at the end of last chapter. And apparently here at the beginning of this chapter, Saul has also sent David out on more campaigns directly from the Goliath battle scene. You see in verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. But then they finally come home. By verse 6, the army is finally coming home from the scene of Goliath and then some some other campaigns that have happened and And victory was there as well. So news must have spread back home, not only of Goliath, but also of so much more that has been been blessed of God in David's hands. And a welcome parade forms. That's what you did when the army came home and was victorious. A welcome parade forms, and and a song or a chant begins to swell, starting with the female musicians. This chorus of celebration in verse 7 is Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, most likely, that was not meant as a dig to Saul. This is Hebrew poetry. And so the first line is supposed to be saying basically the same line as the second line, the same thing. 
It's not meant to be a contrast, David versus uh, Saul, or Saul versus David. It's not about who's better. It's just combining them together. The The women of Israel are celebrating Saul's and David's many victories. And that's how Saul should hear it. But when you're self-absorbed, when you're consumed with what other people think, when you're the kind of guy who back in chapter 13, when Jonathan had a great victory over the Philistines, it said, Saul blew the trumpet and all Israel heard that Saul had defeated them. When you're that kind of guy, self-absorbed, consumed, with what others think and, and also lacking confidence, then, then you misrepresent the truth and you're also paranoid. You're paranoid and you pounce on the littlest thing that someone says. And you read into it the, the worst possible light you can. That's exactly what Saul does when he hears that little chorus in verse 17. And that leads to the third reaction. Saul grows jealous of David. He grows jealous. Jealous is probably too soft of a word. Other words are used in verse 8. Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. But jealousy is what's behind those words, right? Jealousy is like the first ingredient in the blender of Saul's sin and self-destruction. And so his jealousy leads to anger. And it leads to fear. He says in verse 8, What more can he have but the kingdom? He didn't know how true that was. But it's not a statement of faith. It's a statement of fear. And it led to suspicion and conspiring. It said in verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. Yeah, keeping his eye on him, but also eh, conspiring. What a contrast to Jonathan. What a contrast. What a contrast to the response of Saul's servants and all Israel. What a misplaced perspective about what's going on with the nation at this time. The Philistines are getting pushed back. Victory is being won. Every time David goes to battle with them, those pesky Philistines are going down. This is good. This is what God has promised. This is what God said he would do. He would defeat his enemies. And Saul is consumed with self and preservation. And it only gets worse. His anger and fear and suspicion leads to five wicked plots for David's demise. Five wicked plots. The first is with a spear. In verse 10 it says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved. We saw the same thing in chapter 16, didn't we? A spirit from the Lord, harmful spirit, rushed upon him. We said when we looked at that in chapter 16, that could be a demon that's sent from God. It could be an angel that's sent from God. And it could be that God just did some sort of zapping to Saul's emotional world and didn't need to use any kind of angelic messengers. 
We don't know for sure. Any of those are possible, and really, the specifics don't matter. We know the origin, God. We know the reason, Saul's sin. And we know the result, some sort of craziness, either a a serious bout with depression or or maybe even madness or, or something more clinical like schizophrenia. David, it says, was playing the liar as he did day by day. We saw that in chapter 16. Saul was burdened by this harmful spirit from the Lord. And and there David took his lyre and played it with his hand. And Saul was refreshed and was well. I'm sure many times since that, that instant in chapter 16, David has played and it has soothed Saul. But now Saul is foaming with jealousy And so David's skillful music now is just a a sour note in Saul's ear. So there he is, David playing, his spears in his hand. Verse 11, and Saul hurled his spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Thankfully, David evaded him twice. So this happened at least twice. We'll see in the next chapter, it happens again. Now, we know Saul's intentions. We, the reader, we see it. He thought, I will pin David to the wall. David probably doesn't know that, though, at least not yet. Saul's intentions to kill David aren't made clear in public until the next chapter. And then even still then, the people are still wondering whether Saul is sincere about it. That'll happen for the next couple of chapters. Is he really going to kill David or not? They don't know. So most likely at this point, David is chalking up this javelin hurling, the spear hurling, to simply Saul's madness, his rage. You know, every now and then he really loses it and he throws stuff and look out if he grabs a javelin, that sort of thing. David likely doesn't see it as something personal and as an actual purposeful attempt on his life but it gets worse and it becomes clear eventually. A second plot is like this, with more war. Saul goes after David's demise, I think, with more war in verses 12 to 15. Possibly he gives him a demotion. We saw back in verse 5 that Saul set David over the men of war. That sounds like four-star general to me. And now here in verse 13, it says, Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander over a thousand. I think that's a demotion. And possibly it's just to get David out of his sight. He removed him from his presence. I can't look at him anymore. Probably something else is in the back of Saul's mind. We read about it already twice in this chapter later on that David is sent away into battle because the more you go to war, the greater the chances that eventually you'll get caught, you'll get killed. It's a law of averages. However skill and clever David is, the more he fights, the more likely he'll die. That's clearly what Saul's thinking later on in the chapter, and it's probably what he has in mind here, even though it doesn't say so. But whatever the reason, for sending David away, 
it backfires big time. In verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Israel wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles for them. Here David's functioning like that, isn't it? He's going in and out before them and all Israel's rejoicing in it. The plan backfired on Saul. So it leads to a third plot with a marriage to Merab. A marriage to Merab. Now if you were with us last week, you might remember that Saul had made a promise to the one who defeated Goliath. He'd be given a few things, and one of those was Saul's daughter in marriage. No mention of that here now. There's no mention of it. David's not given that because he killed Goliath. In fact, he has to earn it again. Saul says to David in verse 17, Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. This is a bride price, what's called a dower. Common in ancient times. They still do it in, in places like India today. So forget that promise to, to the one who defeated Goliath back in chapter 17. This by itself is more than reasonable. It's reasonable for Saul to offer his daughter to David with this kind of condition. Go out and, and kill me some Philistines. Show me that you love her. Show me that you're with me. Show me that you're for the kingdom. But we get a secret peek into Saul's brain, don't we? Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Twice in this chapter, Saul will use the wicked Philistines as the instrument to take out God's anointed. The Philistines are the one who should be opposed. They're the enemy. And inside his own house, there's David. He makes him the enemy and the Philistines his instrument. It's so, so backwards. We know what the intention is. David doesn't yet. In humility, he replies to that offer, verse 18, Who am I that I should be son-in-law to the king? And then we don't know what happens after that. Verse 19 just tells us that at the time when Morab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel. So did David refuse Saul's daughter in marriage when he said, who am I? Uh-uh. No, more likely is this, that Saul promised his daughter to David, but when the time came for that to happen, Saul simply changed his mind. He reneged. And there's no explanation for it here. There's no reason why he did that. I mean, it was his plan from the beginning, right? And maybe that's the point of there being no explanation in the story. This is a guy who's acting irrationally. There's no reason for it. He's erratic. He's changing his mind. He's shifty. He's unsure. He's unpredictable and unreliable. Nevertheless, it moves along with a fourth plot with a marriage to Michal. It says in verse 20, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And so Saul sees another opportunity here to manipulate 
use his family, his own daughters, for David's demise. Not with too much imagination, mind you. It's basically the same plan. It goes from plot three to plot four with, uh, how about a different daughter? But we're told right up front what Saul's intentions are. Here's his reasoning in, in verse 21. Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. We're not sure what that means. But we're, we're sure about this, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so Saul sends messengers to David, and this time with a bit more of a, a flattery appeal. The king has delight in you. All his servants love you. Become the king's son-in-law. But David responds in deference and humility once again. Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? I'm a poor man. That should stand out to us if, if we saw last week one of the promises given to the one who defeats Goliath was great riches. Saul's reneged on that one too, apparently. David's a poor man. He has no way to give a, a, a bride's gift or a dower. It doesn't matter. That's not what Saul is after. Saul tells the servants to explain to David. Verse 25, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That's a gruesome gift. That kind of thing wasn't unheard of in ancient Near East. One reason for it was simply accounting. A king could verify the enemies have been defeated at this number. So some kings would request fingers or heads or, or ears or whatever. The uncircumcised Philistines make sense. Uh, to the, for them, Saul says, bring me a hundred foreskins. But don't focus on that. That's not the point. Well, David shows up and he has 200 foreskins. David has God's blessing on the battlefield. And Saul has no choice but to give his daughters, his daughter, to David in marriage. David's success and protection was an apparent sign. His blessing and power on the battlefield was a, a clear sign, like it says in verse 28, that the Lord was with David. It, it's undeniable. Saul sees it and knows it, it says. And Saul also saw and knew that Michal loved David. The whole thing backfires. His enemy is now in his family. So it says Saul was even more afraid of David. Now, a few themes keep getting repeated and even building. One is that the Lord was with David. And thus, he keeps having success in all that he does. Verse 12, verse 14, verse 28, verse 30. Another theme that keeps getting repeated is that everyone loves David. Six times in this chapter it's said that David is loved. Another time it's said that he's highly esteemed. And another thing we keep seeing repeated here in this chapter is Saul's reaction to these things. We keep getting emotional comments about Saul. 
that he was very angry and displeased in verse 8. He raved in verse 10. He was afraid in verse 12. He stood in fearful awe, verse 15. He's even more afraid in verse 29. Do you see it building? He's unraveling. But there's one more plot he has in mind with a public death warrant. We've got to go to the next chapter to see that, but we see now it goes public, a public death warrant in chapter 19. Let's read the first few verses of this chapter. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? What's surprising about this turn into chapter 19 is that Saul's desire for David's death has now gone public. That changes at verse 1. That's new in the story. Saul's obsession with David's extinction grows desperate and more and more extreme. Think about it. David is universally loved in the kingdom, and he's famous. And you go public with his execution. That is risky and crazy to tell all the servants to kill David. David's highly esteemed. Saul himself said, what more can David have but the kingdom? You want a coup, Saul? You want a civil war here? Do you want to divide the kingdom straight down the middle? You want to split this thing? Well, Saul isn't thinking that. He's not thinking about risks. He's locked on to one thing. He's spinning dangerously out of control, we could say. And it started with jealousy. D.A. Carson says of this chapter, This sort of jealousy is progressively devouring it nags Saul's mind and multiplies like a cancer. It erupts in uncontrolled violence. It slips into twisted schemes enmeshing Saul's own family. In the chapters ahead, it settles into something beyond rage, implacable hatred that deploys the armed forces against one innocent man who makes Saul feel insecure. In this chapter, Saul isn't even acting like a king. What is he doing that's king-like in this chapter? He's sitting on his throne, throwing his javelin, and trying to marry off his girl so that David gets killed. He's doing nothing kingly in this whole chapter. Except David is. David is. Let's wrap this up with two observations. Two observations about this chapter. The first is Saul helps us to see sin's vortex. Sin's vortex. Sin is like a, a vortex. We've been hearing about a, a vortex of weather, 
right? What is a vortex? A vortex is that thing at the, the bottom of the bathtub when it's draining. It's, it's pulling it down. It's, it's going from here down to there. And that's what we see with Saul's sin. But it starts out with things that we're pretty familiar with. Fear. Jealousy. Doubt. Anger. Self-focus. Concern for what others think. Fear of man. These are all very common to us. We're very familiar with these. Yes, Saul is an extreme version of these very common sins. Which means Saul is a worse version of ourselves. But this is where sin goes. Every sin desires to go to the extreme. The Puritan John Owen, he said this, Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Every sin, might it have its course, would come to the height of villainy. It is never satisfied. Sin is a vortex. And sin is deceptive. It's not painful to look at Saul's sin if we simply just make a comparison with ourselves and feel like we, we look a lot better. We don't do this kind of stuff. Probably every one of us can look at Saul in this chapter and say, I thank you, God, that I am not like this idiot, this self-obsessed, manipulative, full of hatred jerk. But painful as it is, we should instead view Saul as something like a, a mirror of the worst version of ourselves. It shows us herself. Saul shows us the ugliness of sin, and he shows us the ugliness of sins that we're very familiar with. Jealousy, anger, bitterness, fear, self-consumption. Those sins are rarely ugly to me. When they're in me, when they're done by me, I can spot them a mile away in Saul. I can spot them a mile away in you. I don't see them like that in me. My jealousy, it's, it's not really jealousy. I like to think of it as disappointment about an injustice or an inequity in the world. My anger isn't, isn't sinfully ugly to me most of the time. It's, a, it's the only possible response to your sin against me. It's really righteousness. My fears are so understandable to me because I think of all the things that could go wrong and could be taken from me, and so they're legitimate fears. Well, those things in my heart aren't ugly enough to me. I can spot them a mile away in Saul. It's painful to look, but we must. It's painful to admit we have Oh, very similar sins, day in and day out in our own heart and life. We're comfortable with our own, 
Yeah, we want to puke with Saul's. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the failures of the Old Testament, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. These things were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest you fall. Look at Saul's downward spiral and tremble. But we're given this encouragement in 1 Corinthians 10 as well. No temptation has ever taken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escapes. There's no fatalism here. But there is something about the seriousness of sin, the vortex of that pull. So Christians, let us flee sin. Let us flee Fear and anger and bitterness and self-consumption. Let us flee all doubts. Let us love righteousness. Let us repent. Let us keep short accounts with our Lord. Let us help each other in these things. We need God's help. We need each other's help. If you're not a Christian, uh, please don't hear me right now saying, do better, try harder, walk straighter, be cleaner, be nicer. No, look at, yourself, look at Saul and see yourself and see your need for a Savior. Don't just try to do better. There's no hope in that. See your need for a Savior. That leads to the second observation. That David points us to the anointed one, Jesus. And here's where we finally come back to where we started. Jesus is our hope. Like David, Jesus was opposed vehemently and violently. So in John 11, just after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that's a good thing, right? Oh, no, no. The religious leaders hold a meeting to discuss Jesus, and, and here's their conclusion. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. When a man with a withered hand was healed by Jesus, the religious leaders conspired against him to destroy him. And they did. They crucified him. Well, that's not the end of the story, though. He was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven. It was God's plan all along. So this is how the disciples in Acts 4 pray. They refer back to David's time, in fact, to Psalm 2, which we referenced last week. They say in praise to God, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. David prayed that in Psalm 2. He wrote bigger than he knew. It's clearly also referring to the capital A anointed Jesus. And that's how they apply it in their prayer in Acts 4. They say, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. 
And they simply did whatever your hand in your plan had predestined to take place. Pilate said, what has he done? I find no fault with this man. He washed his hands clean. He said, this this man is innocent. And yet all the more they yelled, oh, no, 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 crucify him, crucify him. They opposed God's anointed very much like Saul did back in 1 Samuel. Without cause, innocent blood. And yet this is all part of God's plan. Saul's opposition is mirroring the opposition of the religious leaders in Jesus' time. And it's not defeat for Jesus. It's all victory. It's part of the plan. Jesus said, no greater love is there than this, that a man would lay his life down for his friends. Are you with him or against him? Is he your friend? Are you his? God's anointed one divides all humanity. It even divides homes like Saul's. His firstborn son aligned himself with David against his father. His daughter loved David. And in the next chapter, we'll see that she protects her husband and lies to her, to her dad. Saul's own family aligns themselves with their father's sworn enemy. Saul's house was divided. Jesus said this would happen. He said he came to bring not peace, but a sword. In Matthew 10, he says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, there's no Switzerland with Jesus. Are you for him or against him? Is he for you or against you? To oppose him is to spiral to your own eternal demise. Like Saul, there's fighting and clawing, but there's no winning. The writing is on the wall. You can scratch and claw all you want to keep your own little kingdom like King Saul did, but the end will come. Oh, but how wonderful and beautiful it is to to do what Jonathan did. To recognize and bow. To see what's going on and believe. To give up our own puny little kingdoms and lay them at his feet. It's all his anyway. To say to him, You're the one. You've been the one all along. Where you lead, I will follow. My lot has been cast with you, even if it means not with my family. Because he's the one. 
It's in that path that there's the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, not fear and worry and doubt and anger and manipulation and self-focus and futility like you see in Saul and you know in little glimmers in your own life as well. No, we don't want that. We want worship and wonder, forgiveness and comfort and joy and acceptance. As Peter taught us to pray. Even though we don't now see him, we love him. And we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus changes everything. Would you pray with me? Father, help us as we preach to ourselves now against fear and unbelief to believe that you're our righteousness, our payment. We pray, Lord, that there would be no pretended neutrality with you here. And we would flee our pathetic little kingdoms, stop clawing to protect them, and we would give them to you. That we would bow and believe like Jonathan did before David, or better, like so many did before our Lord Jesus. Help us now to not fear, not worry, not doubt, but trust the anointed one, our Savior in Jesus. We pray in his name.